0: Now, as we continue our series in the Book of Romans, you know that there are places where I slow up considerably, and there are some places where I think it's advantageous to look at a larger pericope uh, more broadly, and that's what we'll do tonight, because I think you need to see how Chapter 7 hangs together, otherwise it could be confusing. This chapter has been a great battleground uh, in the history of the Christian Church, and I'll point some of that out as we move along. But before we do, let me remind you that uh, on the basis of good, solid, biblical exegesis, our confession of faith teaches that there are three uses of the law. The law of God has an elliptic use. That is to say, it comes from the hand of God in the hand of the Holy Spirit to convict sinners of sin and to drive us to the Savior. Then there is what is sometimes called the civil use of the law, that is to say the law of God read in society is uh, used of the law and the restraint of wickedness in a culture and so forth. And then of course there is the law of God as the norm of the Christian life. Now that third use of the law is really the the most uh, significant in many ways, but it is not what Paul has in mind here. So when you hear Paul using categorical statements about being free from the law as he does here and in places such as excuse me such as Galatians 3 then you can know that the apostle Paul is talking about the elenctic use of the law. He is talking about the condemnation of the law. He is not talking about the law as a norm for the Christian life. That is something that remains. When a believer comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the law is written on our hearts. And we desire that our lives be conformed to the law. And so that's a very important uh, distinction to keep in mind as we now move to the 7th chapter of Romans. Shall we pray before reading? Our Father, we ask in the name of the Savior as we come to this text that the Holy Spirit will illumine the page. After all, it is the Spirit of God who has given to us this word by divine inspiration... It is inerrant in the whole and in the part, and we, your people, need to understand it. We pray then that we will, and that as we leave this place, we will be more concerned to fight against sin and the power of the Holy Spirit than when we walked in. That every Lord's day we would find ourselves growing and becoming more conformed to the image of your Son. And also, Father, if there are those here who have no internal struggle with sin, that is to say, they have no desire to bring glory to God and to fight against sin in their lives, then that person is a lost person. And we would pray that those who do not know You would come and put their faith in Jesus Christ, that You would enable them to do so through the power of Your Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The seventh chapter of the book of Romans, this is the Word of God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law... For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. of sin. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He came to set us free from our sins, and He has done so through His cross and resurrection from the dead. If Christ came to set His people free from sin, then why do we continue to struggle with sin? And every Christian does. Every Christian here knows that within his heart he desires the glory of God and yet daily, even moment by moment, knows that there is a war within and he battles with temptation and with sin. Now freedom is the great theme of this middle section of the book of Romans. In chapter 5 he made it so plain that through the propitiatory work of Christ in our last Adam who shed his blood we were made free from the wrath of God. In the 6th chapter as we have seen over these last couple of Sunday nights we are free from the dominion of sin. And in chapter 7, he makes it plain that we are free from the law, and he applies this to the continual struggle that we Christians have to obey what God has commanded us. Sin then has power because of God's law. That's the great theme here. Sin has power because of God's law. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So we come to this text, and I've mentioned to you that it has been a battleground in the church for centuries, but I think that nonetheless it's something that God has given to us and is understandable. The first thing we want to see as we turn to the text is that we have died to the law through Christ. We have died to the law through Christ. This is in the first six verses. And in these opening verses the Apostle Paul gives an illustration. Let's read it again. In chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, "...or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Thus, and here is his illustration, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law... Of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this illustration is not difficult. If a woman is married, then she is not free to live with another man. What Makes her free to live with another man, to marry again. Well, the death of her husband frees her to consider marriage to another man. Otherwise, she would be an adulteress. What sets her free to marry another? Death. What has set you and me free from the law of God to be married to another? Death, the death of Christ. And so he applies it in this way in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so in the same way, death has ended our bondage to the law, just as this woman's relationship to her first husband has ceased because of the death of her first husband. The law then has has ceased to to bind us, to hold us. We are no longer married to the law of God, but we are married to another. Now also he says we are alive in Christ, which is the point of verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit For death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. The law then has not died, it is Christ who has died. And you died in union with him, we are taught in chapter 6. We just sang the terrors of the law and of God with meek and have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Christ's death ends the sway of the law. Christ's death ends the force of the law. Christ's death ends the dominion of the law, the dominance of the law in our lives. You know these verses from Galatians 2. The Apostle says in verses 19 and 20, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. In which Paul says essentially the same thing in other words in the book of Galatians. So now, we are serving in the new life of the Spirit of God who indwells us, we have died to the law with all of its condemnatory power when Christ died on the cross. Paul then can speak of what we once were and what we now are. Did you catch that in verse 5 and in verse 6? For a while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. So we serve not under the old written code but in the new life of the Spirit. And These two verses actually set up our understanding of what will follow. The two parts that have been disputed in the history of exegesis of this passage. So we move on, and the next thing we see as we move on in the passage is that the law provokes sin. The law provokes sin, and this is found in verses 7 through 13. This corresponds to what we were. In verses 7 through 13, the Apostle Paul is talking about what we once were. He is talking about the unbeliever. And here he says the power of the law in the old age apart from Christ did three things. In verse 7 he says it revealed sin. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And so the law of God as a standard reveals sin. Then also, the Apostle says, it arouses an awareness of sin. In verses 8 and 9, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Someone gives the simple illustration. uh, We're running down the road in our cars. We're going a certain speed. And then there's a sign that says, reduce speed now. And what's the reaction of the heart? Why should I do that? And then you push the pedal and you go faster. The law of God also works that way in the sinner's life. Actually making them more aware of sin. Arousing an awareness of sin. And then it also, the law is is used to make sin spring to life. In verses 8 and 9, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The sum of it all is found in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And so the law and sin are closely bound together, according to this passage. So the question arises, is the law then sin? And the Apostle Paul answers, by no means. The law he makes plain in these verses is absolutely pure The law, he says in verse 12, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And in verse 14, the law is spiritual. The law is not sin. The law is pure. It shows sin to be what it is, like a great light shining upon dirt. The law shows that we are sinners by its absolute purity. And so the apostle says in verse 13... Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So for example, you might have a murderer who is condemned in a court who may blame the law for his incarceration, but the law is not the fault the man is the fault. The law of God shows what the man deserves. But the law of God is not itself evil. The law of God is good. Just as it's true in jurisprudence, it's so with God's law. The point is not only that the law shows us our sin, but that without the law, sin slumbers what the Apostle Paul undoubtedly has in mind here is what the old Puritans called a law work. Evidently for the Apostle Paul it was on the Damascus road that sin seized its opportunity, that the law of God showed him his real self and he recognized the purity and spirituality of the law and he saw that he could not keep it. And it is in a flash as he sees the risen and ascended Savior that he recognizes that he needs this Lord. You see, the law of God is inflexible. The law of God comes with its holy demands. But only when the Spirit of God brings the heart to the point that it sees his need in light of the law of God do we realize the spirituality of the law. And undoubtedly that's what Paul has in mind. But can the law empower Christian obedience? Now, there's much confusion here. Can the law of God actually empower Christian obedience? Is the law an efficient means of sanctification? Now, no doubt it's the standard because it represents the character of God to us. And it's essential that we understand that it is the standard. That's not the question. Can the law actually produce within us obedience? is it an efficient means of sanctification and the answer to that question is no and we come then to the third portion of the text the law has no power to produce holiness the law has no power to produce holiness and that's verses 14 through 25 corresponding to verse 6 Which is the second thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Now he transitions into a discussion of the Christian life. Now this is where all the heat has come from in exegesis through the centuries. There are those who read the entire chapter as meaning the unbeliever. I think that's totally wrong. Verses 14 through 25 address the believer, not the unbeliever. This section is referring to the Christian life. Now the reason some people question this is because Paul in these verses speaks of himself as carnal, sold under sin. He cries out, O wretched man. But let me also point out in verse 22, he delights in God's law. In verses 15, 18, 19, and 21 he speaks of a good will, a will that actually desires to glorify God in obedience. In verse 22 he serves the law. In verse 24 he speaks of intense conflict and in in verse 25 a note of victory in the midst of this conflict and it's a present tense. The personal pronoun I is also used. I think there can be no question but that this section is referencing the Christian life. And I think we totally misread and miss the blessing of the passage if we do not understand that that is the case. Some of you may know the name Alexander White, who was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister of some note. Alexander White collected commentaries on the book of Romans... He had a standing order with his book dealer that any time a commentary on the book of Romans came in that he did not have, that it was to be sent to him. And when the commentary would arrive, Alexander would open the packaging and look at the commentary and the first place to which he would turn would be chapter 7 of Romans 14 and following. And if he found that the commentator referred verses 14 and following to the unbeliever, he would take the commentary, rewrap it, and send it back to the book dealer. Just last night I was reading a book on the resurrection of our Lord in which the writer referenced this passage as referring not to the believer and to struggles, but to the unbeliever. Again, I think that's totally wrong. What he's saying in this passage is the law is impotent to produce good. Why? Because the law speaks to sinners, verse 14. Because the law is spiritual, verse 12, and demands perfection. But the key to understanding the passage is the great paradox of the Christian life that he references here. Paradox characterizes the believer's life. We are free in Christ from sin, But we are still sinners. We are spiritual and yet carnally minded. The paradox does not characterize unbelievers. Do you get that? Unbelievers are not characterized by this paradox. Unbelievers are not free from sin yet still sinners, spiritually minded yet also carnally minded. They do not long for God's glory and have a will to be obedient to God and yet struggle with sin. Only the believer struggles in such a way. And so the Apostle Paul is speaking to us in this passage of the real and the genuine conflict that we have in our daily Christian living with temptation and sin. So in verse 15, uh, he says... I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now surely, believer, you know this is describing your life. This is describing my heart and yours, a renewed will that struggles to be consistent, that longs to be consistent. When we are justified, that is an act, and we are completely righteous judicially. But our hearts are still sinful, and sanctification is a process, and the Lord is working within our hearts to bring about total conformity to the image of Christ that will only happen at death or the return of Christ. That's the struggle. In verses 18 through 20, notice how Paul puts it, "...for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh." For I have the desire to do what is right. You see, that's the godly desire, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So we desire the good of God's law, but we still sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul comes toward the end of this passage in verse 24, and he cries out before the Lord, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And as long as we Christians live in this world, we will battle between the new age to which we belong And the old age from which we have been delivered. But the cry of Paul the Apostle and the cry of our believing hearts is not one of despair. In Christ it is a cry of ultimate victory. It is not a cry of despair but the cry of a renewed heart that is being sanctified. And in this verse, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, we have the true Paul, but not the whole Paul. And we have the true Christian, but not the whole Christian. I've always appreciated the words of G.C. Burkauer, litanies of guilt are spoken on the way of salvation. Not only during the first stage of conversion, but as Christ becomes more wonderful to us in crescendo. Would you like to hear that again? Litanies of guilt are spoken on the way of salvation. Not only during the first stage of conversion, but as Christ becomes more wonderful to us in crescendo. Dr. Van Til put it more simply to the students at Westminster, when as a very, very old man, he looked at the students and he said, Boys, the older I get, the more sinful I become. Now, do you understand that? The more you grow in grace, the more Christ becomes dear to you, the more deeply sanctified your heart, the more you see the love of the cross, the more you understand the depth of your sin, the more you understand what you deserve. That's Vantell's point, and frankly, that's Paul's point as well. The battle is fierce. The battle is real. But the battle has been won ultimately in the cross of Christ. So the battle is fierce. What then then am I to do? Well, that's the next thing we want to see. What am I to do? Well, in this brief survey of this chapter, I think we need to remember that the conflict is real. It is fierce. It is constant. And so don't expect it to be otherwise in the Christian life. Not in this world. Your Christian life is going to be a life of battle. The real Christian life is going to be a life of conflict with enemies without and enemies within. And so realize that it is because we die to sin that we battle with sin. We battle because we have been made alive in Christ. And if you were not alive you wouldn't have a battle. Do you see? It's because you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It's because you are indwelt by God's Spirit. It is because you have died in Christ and have been raised in Him that the Christian life is a struggle and a battle. So realize that. Realize that never is temptation, listen to this, never is temptation stronger and sin busier than when I am aware of who I am in Christ and struggle to please Him. The more conformed your life is to the image of Christ, the temptation will be stronger and the sin busier in your life. Sin is indwelling, but don't help it out by allowing things into your life That will promote sin. And so we need to guard, we need to be careful, we need to be watchful, not to allow those things in my life that simply don't belong. And this means daily faith and daily repentance. You see, the law is not my enemy to condemn me, no longer. Now I long to be conformed to the standard of God's law. And that's what the battle in the Christian's heart is all about. So, what are we to do? Well, I must tell you that every time I read this passage, I think of an illustration that I read many, many years ago. I'll tell you who wrote it. It's actually in a book called The Days of the Fathers in Rossshire. Rossshire is in the highlands of Scotland. And there was a great minister in the 19th century whose name was John Kennedy. He was extremely well-known in that day. As a matter of fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon opened the the church in the highlands of Scotland. It's the largest Gothic structure of its kind. It's in Dingwall, and uh, Spurgeon actually preached the first sermon there. And uh, I've been privileged to preach in that pulpit also. John Kennedy is speaking of some of the ministers in the early days in Russia, those early Presbyterian ministers And he gave this illustration. It's kind of strange, but it makes a point. Here's what the minister said. A farmer in Kilmer was once engaged in thrashing corn. Having been busy all day, there was a considerable heap on the floor at night as the result of his labor. But when he came back to his barn next morning, all the thrashed corn was away. This occurred a second and a third time till the farmer could bear it no longer, so he resolved to watch all night as well as work all day. Having done so, he had not been long waiting when the thief appeared and began to gather up the corn. Leaping upon him, the farmer tried to put him down that he might either bind him or hold him Until help arrived. But the thief proved the stronger of the two, and he had laid the farmer on his back and had almost quite strangled him when a friend came to his rescue. Having hold of the thief after the farmer was on his legs again, his friend said to him, What will be done with this thief? Oh, bind him, was the answer, and give him to me on my back, and I will set off at once with him to the prison at Tain. His friend did as he requested. And offset the farmer with his burden. But as he went out of sight of his friend in a hollow of the road, the thief, with one effort, breaking the cords that bound him, fell upon the farmer and gave him even a rougher handling than before. He would utterly have perished had not his faithful friend just come in time to save him. What will now be done? his friend asked him. The answer was the same as before, only he added, I will be more careful this time. So again, he started with his troublesome burden on his back, and all was quiet till he came to a dark part of the road through the woods of Calrossi, when the fastenings were again broken and the farmer maltreated even worse than before. Once again, his friend comes to his help, but now the farmer would not part with him till he accompanied him to the prison. His request was granted, the jail reached, the thief locked up, and the farmer, forgetting his friend and his delight at getting rid of his tormentor, with a light step set out for his home. Just as he had banished all fear from his heart and was indulging in anticipations of peace for the future, in a moment the thief, having escaped from his cell, (laughs) hurried to overtake him, sprang upon him from behind, And with even more than his former fury, threw the poor farmer to the ground and would have now killed him outright had not the wanted help just come in time of need. Once again his friend asked, what will now be done? The farmer, worried and wearied, cast himself at his feet and seizing him with both hands cried, let the day never dawn on which thou and I shall for a moment be parted. For without thee, I can do nothing. I almost need to say nothing, but I will. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? Isn't that the point? Temptation and sin is real. It is part of the Christian life. It is inseparable for the Christian. Because you are a Christian, you struggle. And you struggle, and often you try in your own power to overcome, and you are overtaken. And again you try in your own power, and you are overtaken. Oh, my friends, don't you see Paul's point? Yes, you will struggle, but never attempt the struggle without your friend. Never. Deepen your walk with him, your communion with him. Read his word be on your knees in prayer. Seek the Lord with all of your heart. Don't attempt to overcome temptation and sin. In your own power you have none. But rely upon the means of grace, upon the divine strength, upon the indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome temptation and sin. And as you do, remember, the Apostle Paul Moves from the 7th chapter to the great 8th chapter in which He dwells upon what it means to be adopted as sons. And He would have us to remember the victory. So yes, in verse 24 He says, Wretched man that I am! Have you never said that when you've fallen in sin? Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? But notice verse 25, Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The outpost will be harassed, the citadel of the heart will never be overtaken. Hebrews 13, I think, forms a great commentary on all of this. When in 13.12, we are told that the redemptive work of Christ has as its goal that He might sanctify His people. And 13.25 ends with a benediction. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.